In previous weeks, we've looked at the types of church governance or government that are erroneous. In the first week, as we looked at Belgic 30, we looked at episcopacy um, and congregationalism. Uh, Last week, we looked at the reformed polity that scripture teaches. Uh, We considered six aspects of Reformed or Presbyterian uh, government, church government, biblical church government. Uh, The first of all being, uh, the first of which is that Christ is the head of the church. Second, that office bearers are chosen by God's people. Third, that the office of bishop and elder are identical, so there's not a hierarchy. Fourthly, that in each local congregation there should be a plurality of elders. Fifth, that ordination An installation is an act of a plurality of elders. Six, that congregants have the right to appeal in case they are grieved, in in case uh, there is a matter that cannot be settled in the local church. You have the right to appeal to a broader assembly, which in our denomination, our federation is called CLASSIS, uh, C-L-A-S-S-I-S, CLASSIS. And the broadest assembly is called Synod, and that's the national gathering of the churches. Classes is the regional gathering. Synod is the national gathering of the churches. Uh, And so these are, uh, from Scripture, six aspects, six of the most important aspects of Presbyterian polity. And today we want to consider, uh, finally, the offices uh, of the church, the offices of the church, And then, of course, what is the goal of biblical church government? Uh, Biblical church government is not an end unto itself. It is a means to an end. It is uh, a way we get to the goal, which is maturity, which is the maturation of God's people. All right. Uh, So first of all, look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. We'll look at the first 15 verses. We've been parked on some of these verses now for a few weeks. Uh, And then I want to look over at... Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verse 11 and following. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and following. 1 Timothy chapter 3, the first 15 verses. And then Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 to 16. This is the word of the Lord. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to too much, to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. 
Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Then we turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. And we read there this word of the Lord. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way unto him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Amen. Let's pray. Father, uh, help us now as we conclude this uh, study on uh, Article 30 uh, today. Father, uh, to understand and to, Father, continue to put into practice uh, your word. We thank you, Lord, uh, that you are uh, our God, that you are clear in your revelation, and that, Father, what is unclear, Lord, you uh, will uh, make clear to us and you will illumine our hearts uh, for those things. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are looking today at the types of church offices, the types, the types of um, leadership found in the church of Christ. As we've just read in Ephesians 4, we saw what Paul there says. He says that when Jesus Christ the King ascended into heaven, that is that he took up his kingly throne He gave gifts to men, quoting Psalm 68. He not only received gifts, but he gave gifts in what, of course, is a normal royal practice. Whenever a monarch ascends their throne, uh, they give a gift and they give many gifts to their subjects, to their people. And here we find in Ephesians 4 that Jesus Christ, the ascended, risen and reigning king, gives gifts to his people. And what are these gifts? Well, we have here what is called the fivefold ministry of Christ. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. Five, right? And some might say even four. Pastors and teachers are combined into one. All right. And the purpose for which he gives these gifts is found in everything that follows. Verse 12 and following. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ for the attainment of the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, to no longer be children tossed to and fro, to rather grow up into the head of the body, which is Jesus Christ. So the point of spiritual gifts, the point of church 
office, the point of biblical church government and Presbyterianism is not for the offices, not for the officers, not for the pastors and the elders and the deacons, right? It's not about us. It's about Christ and growing up into Christ. And we need to keep that in mind. We'll get to that aspect uh, in a moment that this is the point of biblical church government. It is the preservation, the promotion and maintenance of true religion, of true religion. All right. But before we get there, all right, Ephesians 4 tells us that there are five offices, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers. But then we read in 1 Timothy chapter 3 uh, that there are now two offices. So we have to ask the question, how do we get from five to two? Uh, and, and pastor, are there apostles in our day? Are there prophets in our day? And I've had opportunity to speak with some of you in recent uh, days, weeks, months about this because some of us were either coming from Rome, all right, or we're coming from kind of broad evangelicalism, you know, charismania, you know, Pentecostalism, all right? And so there's a little bit of confusion on both sides, to say the least, about offices. Before his ascension, Christ established the leadership of his church. And what, what was the leadership? It was apostles. The apostles were the leaders of the church. Now, elders joined the apostles pretty much early on, but it's really 12 apostles. Uh, there's, of course, Judas, who's um, the son of perdition, and Matthias takes his place, right? So there's 12 apostles um, and there are, of course, certain things about the apostles that were temporary, that were temporary. Uh, and, and this is something we need to keep in mind as we're talking about these things, all right? As we're talking about offices, as we're talking about spiritual gifts, as we're talking about even speaking in tongues and prophecies, right? The apostles had a temporary, temporary, extraordinary and wide, worldwide function and focus. Again, apostles had a temporary, extraordinary, and worldwide focus and function. They, in essence, oversaw the establishment of the church. They, as it were, laid the foundation, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. And you can't relay a foundation. Right? Once the foundation is laid, if you've ever worked with concrete or general contracting, right? if you've worked with uh, cement, you know that once you lay it, it's done. There's only a short amount of time all right, between it being poured and it being hardened. And so the apostles oversee the establishment of the church. They begin the mission to the Gentiles with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are other aspects that are also very unique to the apostles. They alone are eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ. And so as they have walked with Jesus for three and a half years and have received from Jesus his teaching and what they saw in the great, in our great savior and great high priest, right? What they have received now they're giving brothers and sisters. There's no one else who has walked with Jesus for three and a half years. There's no other eyewitness of Jesus. Only the apostles were eyewitnesses. Furthermore, and this is very important for us, all right? They oversaw, why, why did Jesus give, right? You have to ask the question, why did Jesus give apostles? Well, in essence, to oversee the completion 
of the New Testament. It was the apostles who wrote the New Testament. There are a number of exceptions, Luke and Mark being not apostles. But Luke operated under the apostle Paul. Mark operated under the apostle Peter. So uh, what Luke and Mark write is not of their own imagination, of their own invention. They are operating as, as it were, lieutenants under the apostles. But everyone else is an apostle. And they are writing the New Testament scriptures. They are writing what they saw Jesus do and teach. And that is what we call apostolic teaching, right? Someone asked me recently, what what is an apostolic church? An apostolic church is a church that follows the New Testament. And of course, the Old Testament, but especially the New Testament writings. All right? This is an apostolic church. However, until the canon is completed... God gives, God gives the gift of prophecies and tongues and speaking in tongues, all right? And when you read 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and we don't have time here to, to exegete all that, but in the first six verses, you understand that prophecy in Scripture is always revelation. Prophecy is always revelatory, Right? I'll get to our modern day definition, which is erroneous about prophecy. Prophecy is always revelation. Tongue speaking is less than prophecy until it has interpretation. All right. It's to be private. But when it has interpretation, it's raised to the level of prophecy. It's raised, in other words, to the level of revelation. But even tongue speaking, speaking in tongues in other known human languages, not just gibberish, in other known human languages, that too was revelation from God. But you see, whether it's prophecy or speaking in tongues, those were temporary. Why? Until the canon of the New Testament was written. But once we have the canon written, we neither need prophecy or speaking in tongues. And what did the apostles do? They oversaw that process. They regulated speaking in tongues and prophetic ministry, as we see in 1 Corinthians 14, um, it needed regulation because if you don't have apostolic regulation, if you don't have apostolic guidance, things go sideways pretty quick as they did in Corinth where there was all sorts of uh, wild practices occurring in the worship service. All right. Now here's my point about Bringing all of this up. Why am I bringing all of this up to talk about, you know, I thought we were talking about the apostles. It's a slightly tangential point that bears emphasizing, brothers and sisters, because of the presence of Pentecostal charismatic theology in our day. These things I've just mentioned stand and fall together. You cannot pick one aspect of that whole complex and say, well, that thing continues to this day, right? Apostles, speaking in tongues, prophecy, new revelation, and the ongoing writing of the New Testament and the founding of the church. These six things stand and fall together. Once more, apostles, speaking in tongues, prophecy, new revelation, the ongoing writing of the New Testament and the founding of the church are unique, extraordinary, 
one-in-a-lifetime event, epochal events, uniquely redemptive. So the question has to be asked, are there apostles in our day? And if you say no, good, rightly so, there are no more apostles in our day. Then there is no more tongue speaking. There is no more prophecy. There is no new revelation. There is no more ongoing writing of the New Testament. If you say, well, no, they're not apostles, but there's prophecy, right? Then I'm going to ask you, well, what, what is the prophecy that's being given that should be written down? Because if it's prophecy, according to scripture, prophecy is always revelation, right? Prophecy in our day has been misconstrued and redefined as encouragement, right? And you see this with guys like Wayne Grudem. If you've ever heard of Wayne Grudem, he's a Reformed Baptist a systematician out of Phoenix Seminary. Uh, you see this with people like John Wimber, the Vine Vineyard Movement, uh, the Toronto Movement as well, um, Rodney Howard Brown, and other people, right? Talk about prophecy in a, in a kind of different sort of way, right? Sometimes, if they're honest, they would say, oh, no, this is new revelation. So we, we should write it down. If this is new revelation, we should write it down and add it to Scripture. But no one wants to do that, right? Because they understand that Scripture is Scripture and this other stuff is less than Scripture. And so in order to avoid that, people have redefined prophecy to mean encouragement, right? So people might say, well, I have a, I have a prophetic word for you. I have a prophetic word for you. Well, okay, what is it? Um, you know, God just wants us to pray more. God wants us to be holy. And well, that, that's not prophecy. That's, that's what Scripture says. You're, you're reciting scripture to me. Praise God for that. Yes. Let, let us encourage one another with scripture. We don't need new messages. There are no more new messages. All right. But that definition of prophecy, all right, especially popular with Wayne Grudem. And we could even put John Piper in that category as well, who, who allows for prophecy as encouragement. That definition of prophecy is completely unbiblical. Prophecy in scripture is always revelation. All right. So if you say, is there a prophecy in our day? I say no, because there's no new revelation. Is there encouragement in our day? Oh, of course there's encouragement. There's, encur there's all sorts of encouragements from God's word. But don't call that prophecy. Don't call that prophecy. Prophecy is one thing that existed at the, at the time of the apostles, until there was, of course, the completion of the New Testament. And you understand, of course, why God would give prophets to his church. He would give prophets because they did not have the New Testament canon yet completed. All right, it took about 30 years from the time that Jesus ascended into heaven until the very last writing of the New Testament, probably more than likely the book of Revelation written before 70 A.D., um, for the New Testament canon, for the New Testament corpus of writings to be written. And so until that time, God sends divinely ordained placeholders, which we call prophets and apostles, to oversee the church's earliest life. All right. So again, these stand and fall together. You cannot pick apart one of these and say they still exist today. All right. Back to the broader point. The apostles had a temporary, extraordinary 
worldwide focus. However, what happens, so Ephesians 4, God gave to his church these gifts. But what happens just a few years later in 1 Timothy, when Paul is writing near the end of his ministry about how the church is to conduct itself? He doesn't say, well, try to look for an apostle. Let me appoint for you an ongoing uh, apostle or prophet. No, he creates, or rather doesn't create, he transfers, he gives what he has been told by God himself, by divine revelation, that there are now two offices, not five, not apostles and prophets, it's elders in the first part of 1 Timothy 3, and then there are deacons in the second part. Apostles had a temporary, extraordinary, worldwide focus. Now, elders and deacons will have an ongoing, so not temporary, ordinary, not extraordinary, and local focus, not worldwide, right? The apostles could go to Ephesus, could go to Corinth, could go to Crete. They could uh, tell uh, Titus, hey, go to Crete. They could tell, Paul could tell Timothy, go to Ephesus, spend some time there, then go to Corinth, and so on and so forth, right? Now there is a local focus. Elders and deacons are ordained to a local church, right? I am not the bishop that oversees North Jersey, right? Uh, Brother Alfredo, Brother Andre are not elders who oversee three, four, five different churches. No, their calling is to this local particular church. And so there's a, a need for ongoing, ordinary, local leadership. The apostles, in other words, were meant to be temporary. And I think this is something that we need to reckon with, that God gives gifts, and then God takes gifts away. And why is that so hard to believe? Right? That God gave the apostles as a gift, and then the apostles, as they die from the scene of history, the the gift of the apostolate is taken back by God to himself. The reason why we have elders and deacons in the church is because the apostles would not live forever and could not be everywhere in the world, right? They don't live forever and they cannot be everywhere in the world. If you, if you had apostles who could be everywhere in the world and who could live forever, we probably wouldn't have elders and deacons. It's a little bit of a hypothetical, all right? We, we don't know because God didn't ordain it that way. But there's a reason why the apostles are no more and elders and deacons now function in their place. The church in Jerusalem uh, was small at first. It had 120 um, Christians led by 12 apostles. And early on, the apostles did all the work as we've seen in Acts chapter 6. All right, But they found that it was burdensome to their ministry of prayer and the word to do the work of the diaconate, right, of serving tables and ministering to uh, the widows in the daily distribution of bread. So deacons are added to the church as a different office. Um, And then, of course, early on, we see in Acts 11 that elders are on the scene as well. All right, so um, let me just say one point here about the church in Jerusalem, that although it is the first church And in a certain sense, it's the mother church being the first church establishing other churches. In another sense, the Jerusalem church is not the mother church of all the churches. If by that we mean that other churches are dependent and subordinate to it. 
All right, Jerusalem is not the mother church, if by that we mean that other churches are subordinate and dependent upon the church in Jerusalem. Uh, all churches in the New Testament era are a proper church. All right, And this, of course, helps us understand how erroneous Rome's claim is that they are the mother church, right? And all churches are to be subordinate to Rome. No, that wasn't true even in the case of Jerusalem, no less of Rome. Like yesterday, what a glorious day it was yesterday, um, Murph established Grace Reformed Church. We could say that our mother church was Murph, and yet Grace Reformed Church is its own proper church. We're no longer subordinate or dependent uh, upon messiahs. If anything, we're dependent upon all the churches, right? And subordinated to all the churches. And each church, of course, uh, is subordinated to all the churches as well. All right. What are the offices then, uh, more particularly, of uh, elders and deacons? All right. Um, the offices of church government are specific to this particular moment in redemptive history. All right, and this is the case always in church leadership. Uh, Moses and the elders reflected God and his family uh, rescued from Egypt. Right? You think of church leadership at the time of Joshua. Joshua, of course, was a general, and his warriors reflect Joshua as a general, and his warriors reflect God and his conquest of Canaan, the divine warrior that is Yahweh. Uh, David and the monarchy reflect the kingship of God. The 12 apostles reflect the reconstituting of old Israel into new Israel. And now we have elders and deacons. And then the, the one office of elder has two separate functions that have been acknowledged as two separate offices. Now we have minister, elder, and deacon reflecting the ordinary and ongoing work of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. So, when we think of the offices today, and this is a little bit of an in-house debate, and it need not divide faithful churches, but are there two offices or three? Right. Are there two offices or three? Are there elders and deacons? Or is there a separate office of teaching elder, um, ruling elder, and then deacon? And I would submit to you from um, God's word and from redemptive history that there are three offices. Elders and ministers are, are closer than we'd like to think oftentimes in a three-office denomination like we are. The URC teaches three offices. They're really closer, Okay. In a two-office denomination like the PCA, they really ought to be slightly more separated. So um, we, we don't want to make this, of course, something that we divide over, that faithful Reformed churches divide over. But I would submit that there is a reflection of Christ's uh, office, his threefold mediatorial office of prophet, priest, and king. That, that is reflected in the human offices of minister, elder, and deacon. The minister takes up the mantle of the prophetic mantle of declaring God's word, not with new prophecy though, 
<laughs> not with new revelation, right? The minister takes up the ancient paths of God's word and declares that prophecy that has already been given. If you have the handout from yesterday, the forms, I think they are so instructive. I'm not going to reread everything in those forms, but ministers essentially are to teach what is right. They are to teach against error, like a, a prophet of old for, um, uh, foretelling or forthtelling God's word to his people and warning against going astray in doctrine or life, God's people. Ministers are to administer the sacraments, uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper. They are to be in the service of prayer and they, along with the elders, are to shepherd God's people. Elders take up the kingly rule of ruling, the kingly role of ruling God's people. Uh, in ancient Israel, kings were closely associated with shepherds, with shepherding. And of course, we know that from King David, Psalm 23, right? Um, kings were to shepherd the people, to, to protect the people, to guard the people, to make sure a good king uh, made sure that the people were fed, that they were well guarded, well protected against attacks. And so it is with elders. Elders have this, this kingly role of maintaining the peace and the purity of the church and of the discipline of the church and to watch over you, the congregation of Christ. And of course, they are to watch over me and my life and my doctrine particularly and what is taught and preached from this pulpit. Deacons, thirdly, take up the priestly function of mercy, uh, of compassion. They are uh, in charge, as it were, uh, or directing mercy ministry. We see this in the book of Acts, where seven deacons were appointed to help in the distribution of bread, the daily distribution of bread to the Hellenistic widows in Jerusalem. But you know that Philip was among those seven, as well as Stephen, who was a great preacher of the word of God. So it's not merely an administrative task. It's a deeply spiritual office. It's an office, of course, that seeks to minister God's mercy and address the suffering of God's people. Uh, in the book of Leviticus, we see this priestly function uh, when lepers were to go to the priests, right, to be inspected and to be declared clean. We see the same in the gospel accounts uh, when Jesus heals the lepers. He says, go and show yourself to be clean, right, to the priests. In Acts chapter 6, when deacons are established to minister to the Hellenistic widows, the Jewish widows, um, we're told in the book of Acts, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. What an interesting statement. Right? But it's not a coincidence that the priests in Jerusalem see that deacons are established to minister to the needs, the material needs of God's people, and priests become obedient to the faith. And they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ when they see how these deacons reflect the mercy and compassion of Christ. And then, of course, as we take up the very end of the Belgic Confession, Article 30, uh, the second to last paragraph says, by this means, true religion is preserved 
True doctrine is able to take its course. Evil men are corrected spiritually and held in check so that also the poor and all the afflicted may be helped and comforted according to their need. Uh, What is the purpose of biblical church government so that true religion would be preserved, maintained, and promoted? In the words of Ephesians 4 verse 12, so that we would be built up so that we would attain unity, the knowledge of Christ's mature manhood, so we would no longer be, verse 14 of Ephesians 4, children tossed to and from uh, with, by every wind of doctrine. Verse 15, so that we would grow up in every way into Christ, and so that we would enjoy growth and life from Christ to his body, such that the body of Christ helps the body of Christ grow. This is the greater goal of having pastors and elders and deacons, right? It's not an end unto itself, but rather having biblical church government is a matter of preserving orthodoxy and the Christian faith. It's a matter of faithfulness to God. It is the biblical God-ordained means to the God-appointed end, that true doctrine be taught, promoted, and allowed to take its course um, we, and this is, of course, uh, what we must seek here today, this week, next week, this year, next year, and for all the years to come that God would give us life, that we would not simply be reformed in name only or reformed by accident, but be reformed by conviction that we understand why we are reformed, that we understand why we have the church government we have and that it is appointed uh, by God to this end. Amen. Let us close in prayer. Our Father and our God, help us, Lord, to give mind to your word, um, to understand uh, why you have established ongoing local Um, ordinary leadership in your church. Father, help us to reject the errors uh, that militate against your word, um, either from the right or from the left. Help us to understand uh, the epochal events of redemptive history, the giving of the apostles, the establishing of the church, the writing of the canon, and so on and so forth. And Father, help us to not look for the extraordinary when you have given us the ordinary. Help us, Father, in all things, to look for you, uh, to look for your grace, to look, to grow, Father, to grow up into Christ and to leave uh, childish, worldly things behind. Father, help us on to this end. In Jesus' name, amen.